Well, this should be one of the proudest documents in the history of this country. This is it, the uh, document hailing the foundation of our National Health Service, that no longer do people have to uh, pay money to see a doctor, a nurse, to be treated, but that it's there all of a sudden on the basis of their needs. It's a very proud moment in the history of this country, and we should celebrate this sort of document maybe more than we do at the moment. That was Owen Jones talking about the inception of the NHS in 1948. Everyone in the country was sent a leaflet laying out the principles of the NHS. Say my NHS! Welcome to the second episode of the NHS in Stitches podcast and thank you so much for listening. I hesitated in introducing myself in the last episode because this is not about me, it's about the fight to save the NHS, but some feedback said that made it a bit impersonal and harder to relate to. So hello, I'm Helly McGrother. I've been a member of Waltham Forest Save Our NHS campaign group for about five years. We do our campaigning in our spare time and we're unpaid. As a group, we go to meetings with councillors, attend health trust board meetings, CCG meetings, read endless documents. That's all intelligence gathering. Um, the next harder task is to get the information we gather out to you, the public. There are brilliant websites like Keep Our NHS Public, Public Matters and Centre for Health and the Public Interest where you can get loads of information. Oh, the Health Campaigns Together website is very good as well. Also, we produce leaflets and demonstrate. I decided to make this podcast in an attempt to fill a gap in that dissemination of information. I hope you will forgive the long gap between the first episode and this one. It's all a new skill for me, so it's taking much longer than I had hoped. The next one should be out much sooner, fingers crossed. Before I go any further, I must ask you to keep the date of the 30th of June in your diaries. There will be a national demo in support of the NHS in London. Yes, I know, very sorry. I think there should be more outside London. But please come and we need you. And you will need the NHS one day. If we don't fight for it now, it will not be there when you do need it. In this episode, I'm afraid I'm already diverting from my stated format from the first episode, making this a one-subject episode or a special, you could say. We're tackling the thorny subject of accountable care systems or integrated care organisations, same thing, for short, ACOs, or in plain English, the root and branch restructuring of the NHS that is happening right now. There is so much information to try to get into your ears. I've tried to structure this episode slightly differently in the hope that it will help with the info delivery. The next bit is an introduction and will describe the evolution of ACOs with a picture of how services will be run when they're in place. Then we have a chat that we recorded between myself and two other North East London healthcare campaigners where we unpick some more of the detail and examine the ramifications of this restructuring. We do go into a bit of detail but there are also some comedy bits from Nish Kumar and Rufus Hound. I think it's really important to say that this restructuring we're talking about is going on in disguise and that disguise is called integrating health and social care. It's actually a huge push towards reducing levels of care provided by the NHS and the siphoning in, if that's an expression, of private companies. This so-called integration of care is being done in an environment of huge cuts to social services that are generally funded by cash-strapped councils. 
bear in mind that in two years time local councils in England will receive no funding from central government and will be expected to raise all their funds from local business taxation or whatever method they can dream up. To understand ACOs, we do need a bit of background, some of which was covered in the last episode, but I hope you will agree retracing a bit can be helpful. Massively important points are that one, before the Health and Social Care Act of 2012, the Secretary of State for Health had a legal duty to provide healthcare for all, free at the point of need. This obligation was enshrined in law when the NHS was formed in 1948, The Health and Social Care Act of 2012, 64 years later, removed that obligation. Now the state doesn't have to provide healthcare in England. Secondly, changes in how healthcare is provided was generally discussed in Parliament, so the public could have some idea of what was going on. Now there is no automatic discussion in Parliament and the public are therefore kept ignorant of major changes. Oh yeah. The Health and Social Care Act that brought these major changes was introduced with no democratic mandate and was never in any party manifesto. So, before then, everybody living in England was entitled to health care and this was delivered via local health authorities and primary care trusts that were organised on a geographic basis. Crucially, there were clear lines of responsibility and accountability via parliamentary scrutiny and local councils, etc. These PCTs have now been reorganised and replaced by clinical commissioning groups. Commissioning being the operative word because we now have a market-based system within the NHS. Laws have been changed and healthcare restructured in order to parcel up and separate off services so that private companies can now come in and easily take them over, but still under the NHS logo. In fact, CCGs legally have to invite private companies to compete for contracts. It's worth clarifying, I think, that existing and well-functioning NHS-run services also have to compete with these private companies for contracts. Health budgets are being cut in real terms, yet increasing percentages of that money and of GP clinical time goes on this time-consuming and expensive tendering process. This is what so-called specialist centres and hubs that we're beginning to see are all about. You may have noticed that when you go for a blood test, you have to travel further to a larger facility. It's much easier for the companies, and keyword here, profitable, to concentrate services in one larger clinic than have smaller clinics in more local venues. But of course, so much worse for the patient who has to travel further, especially if they are infirm, have children to deal with, or even just have to get more time off work, never mind all the problems with accessing appointments in the first place. This restructuring is for the benefit of private companies, not the patient, and these companies are creaming off a huge profit from NHS budgets. These private companies have been behaving disgracefully amid this new market system. To name a couple, you may be aware that recently Virgin sued uh, CCG because they didn't win a particular contract and were awarded a rumoured two million compensation package. This is an overt bullying tactic warning other CCGs that if you don't award a company contracts, you will be sued. This, of course, was a cost to an already cash-strapped NHS. How avaricious can you get? Then, of course, there is the recent Carillion debacle or scandal 
where the management of the company was far more interested in paying massive dividends to their shareholders than protecting the pensions of their workforce or providing decent services. And of course, many of these health companies are offshore multinationals not even paying their rightful share of tax. When I was growing up, the board game I played most often, I now think it is insane we allow children to play this game. I'm talking, of course, about Monopoly. I cannot believe Monopoly is a game. First of all, it's called Monopoly. That is a financial crime. We have governmental bodies designed to prevent. There's no games named after other financial crimes. There's no embezzlement ball. Or, hey, kids, build your own Ponzi scheme. People are worried about Grand Theft Auto. Monopoly. Monopoly reinforces the Thatcherite way of running your economy as the right way to do so. Because the public works, the uh, electric company, the train station, you could just buy them. And the more of them you own, the more money you make. What happens if you go to jail? Nothing, as long as you can afford to bribe your way out. <laughs> and the worst thing that can happen to you on a Monopoly board is you land on the square that says, pay your tax. What kind of message <laughs> are we sending our children? I was playing Monopoly with my six-year-old cousin the other day. He went, oh, no, I have to pay tax. <laughs> Great, there goes another future HSBC employee. And here's the thing, it would not take much to bring Monopoly back into the political centre ground. All you have to do is add a third deck of cards. Because at the moment, when you get a Monopoly set, you've got Chance and Community Chest. I suggest we add another deck of cards called Consequence, so we can teach these little pricks <laughs> something about real-world economics. And the Consequence cards could be anything. For example, your hotels are vandalised by a group of youths who have had their community centre closed down due to governmental cutbacks. Pay £50,000! You have to employ a private security service due to soaring crime rates, due to the underfunding of the police force and the long-term consequences of the social divisions that have fueled your rise as a property mogul. Pay £250,000. You fall in a crack in the road that has not been fixed due to underinvestment. You go to the local hospital, but it has closed down. Your foot falls off. Please pop to go and collect £100. It would have been 200 but we've cut disability benefits. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've got an amazing night ahead of you. My name's Nish. Good night. Another major thing the Health and Social Care Act did was to create a sort of national management body called NHS England. Um, we have no way of influencing what NHS England decides to do. I find it very suspicious that Simon Stevens, who is CEO of NHS England, has a background in private healthcare in the United States. This new body, NHS England, then produced what it called the five-year forward view and then morphed it into Sustainability and Transformation Plans, or SDPs. I know, there's a lot, isn't there? Campaigners have researched into these plans via secret documents that were never meant for release to the public but were leaked or accidentally published. The documents themselves display no evidence to justify these changes, just vague aspirations, any possible imagined benefit is completely negated by the ideologically imposed imperative to make massive savings. The talk is all of transforming services. To what end, we have to ask? Less use of expensive hospital beds? Having less beds doesn't eradicate the need for those beds. 
the service will be transformed but not for the better of patients. After huge criticism from health campaigns and the public, STPs then became rebranded as Sustainability and Transformation Partnerships. So this latest bit of uh, jiggery pokery is that England has now been split into 44 STP footprints where the CCGs, remember those, have been merged with each STP having a single accountable officer opposed upon it. One of those footprints is the East London Healthcare Partnership. That is made up of seven CCGs and eight local authorities. It has recently agreed to create the single accountable officer position, despite opposition from the local councils. This position is set up to oversee the operations of the whole STP. That's one person overseeing eight local authority areas. CCGs have had to sign up or they would not get transformation funding. Indeed, Hackney CCG was threatened with legal measures if it did not sign up for the single accountable officer. I wonder how much that single accountable officer is being paid. Hmm. The East London Healthcare Partnership said a single, a single accountable officer will enable working to a capitation-based system to achieve financial stability and incentivise the right clinical behaviours. The role of the CAO is clearly to drive through the five-year forward view, including integration of health and social care. It's amazing to think that this has all happened in the last five, in the last six years or so. This whole-scale reorganisation has removed nearly all local representation and accountability. It's amazing when you go to meetings like the local council health scrutiny meetings or the local hospital trust meetings. These bureaucrats from NHS England march in en masse with many ring binders of documents and speak gobbledygook. When asked a question about staff numbers or bed numbers or patient safety, they reply in utter doublespeak and never actually answer the question. How much are these people being paid out of the NHS's precious budget? Well, I can tell you that by February in 2017, the NHS spent 17.6 million on consultancy fees alone. On my local East London level, the plan appears to be that the East London Healthcare Partnership is to become an Accountable Care System, or ACS, and then very likely to become an Accountable Care Organisation, or ACO. This process is being reflected around the country, the horrible irony being that these organisations are not accountable, do not improve care and are not well organised. The Accountable Care System is a morphed version of the Sustainability and Transformation Partnership with responsibility for a defined population and with a defined budget. That's the capitation bit mentioned earlier. The ACS will be responsible for the cost and quality of services for a defined population and for a fixed sum, meaning they will only provide a level of care that their budget allows and not provide a level of care that the population needs. So the basic tenet of our NHS, that of universal healthcare provision for all, free at the point of need, will be gone. Because if you need more treatment than the local budget allows, you will have to pay for it. That includes treatment for cancer and other life-threatening conditions. On top of all this, 14 of the STP areas in England are now outrageously deemed by NHS England and NHS Improvement, another quango there, to be areas that, and I quote, in effect take more than their fair share at the expense of other people's hospital services. 
and are subject to a capped expenditure process or CEP. There's more of that special language. This means a further financial squeeze in areas that need it most that will lead to dangerous and arbitrary further reduction in services. It's almost like punishing people for being ill. A leaked document showed NHS managers and CCGs were told to think the unthinkable in efforts to save money. It is only the Herculean effort of health campaigners that has uncovered this, and it is those campaigners and some good journalists who are bringing this to the public now. An ACO will be run as a business with little accountability to the local people in contrast to the NHS. ACOs will transfer many of the CCG's responsibilities to a special purpose vehicle, giving private companies, including multinationals, a significant role in planning and commissioning services as well as in delivery. We hear more about SPVs in the next episode and in our chat later. Lastly, and by no means least, wrapped up in all of this is the Naylor Review. It is forcing the rapid land sale of unused or so-called inefficiently used NHS land or buildings. Capital funding will be withheld from hospitals and CCGs if adequate progress is not demonstrated. In August 2017, the House of Commons Library revealed a doubling of the number of NHS, uh, of NHS sites being sold off. 117 of which were actually still being used at the time. Sales will be and are being rushed and land sold off cheaply to the private sector and any new healthcare buildings will be funded by the latest version of PFI. Bear in mind that once NHS buildings and land is sold off there is no going back and hospitals cannot expand or reconfigure making the NHS inflexible in its response to the changing needs of the people it cares for, changes in population numbers or the ratio of young to old for example. So here's our chat um, that we we do go into things in a little bit more detail but I think what's good is that we managed to tease out some details of it that kind of don't really come through when you're just listing the process of what's been happening. Um, it talks a bit more about the actual on the ground ramifications. So I hope you enjoy this next bit. Two fellow campaigners in North East London here with me and we're going to talk about ACOs. We've all been campaigning quite a lot and studying about them. <laughs> it takes quite a lot of study. We've got a set of questions that we're going to use to frame the conversation. Let's go, shall we? Okay. okay. Question one, with this huge reorganisation, mm. which is absolutely root and branch, um, is it an ideological reorganisation why are they doing it and is it about saving money and being more efficient and providing better care for everybody is that what their motivation is do we think you want a simple answer <laughs> yes <laughs> it's ideological yeah. Yeah. it is it's mm. about i mean you can most it to all sorts of things but one thing that that um helps bring it into relief i think is the, that meeting of the world economic forum and 
2012, I think it was, which looked at different ways of trying to make these systems what they call sort of sustainable. But they made it very clear that this was about opening up the space for multinational companies and cutting the role of the state. And that was absolutely crystal clear. And they were talking about integrated care and accountable care organisations as the way to do this. You hear it talked about, you know, people say, isn't it, um, doesn't it make sense, you know, to, to join everything up? And of course, of course it does. But when people are talking about integrated care now and, and accountable care organisations, but, you know, this phrase integrated care, which sounds so good, when you look at it, in most instances, what's going on is not actually from a patient's perspective. It's actually about integrating organisations. It's about restructuring and, and so on. It's not. We have to be really careful about, you know, what is meant by integrated care and actually not taking it at this surface level of oh, isn't that great? It's it's um it's an ideological term, if you like. It's um. What, what do we think? You know, when when we hear the government speaking about integrated care and saying, well, isn't isn't that a good thing? Like the Sarah Wollaston um, response. Um, isn't that a good thing? Don't you want integrated care? Mm. What What do we say to that? I mean, that, you know, in terms of integrating the NHS into social care, which is so dramatically underfunded in the first place. Mm. I mean, they, there's lots of there's lots of ways of talking about this, aren't there? That we were talking about it earlier, but certainly there's been talk about integrating health and social care more for years and years and years. Um, and for different reasons it's not been successful which is not to say more working together clearly is a better thing more coordinated from the point of view of a patient what a patient wants is for people to work together is not to repeat their story not to fall through gaps to get good care and to get people to get people treating them with dignity and respect and being reliable and competent and capable Um, and co- and coordinating care around them if they're dying at home, which is talked about a lot in mm. terms of of um, doing things better. Integrated care has been talked about in particular, become the buzzword in association with let's cut. We don't need so many hospital beds. Let's provide more care to people in the community. So the two are very connected. Mm. So if you look at does integration reduce the need for hospital beds, the research says no, it doesn't. So it won't do what they want it to do from a financial point of view, because of course hospital beds um, on paper cost more than people being cared for in the community, mm. but arguably actually good care in the community probably costs more because it's more complicated. But the other I mean there's so many there's so many risks about it. I mean social care is dramatically underfunded, it's charged for you integrate health and social care, you start to muddle up the boundaries. And what you could be sure of is that we won't have more non-charged for social care. We'll end up with much more health care being redefined as social care and yeah. therefore chargeable. Mm. And the other thing is that in social care, most care homes now are private. So privatisation has got itself totally established it's in, this in the world of social yeah. care. Mm. So you merge them, and not only do you blur the boundaries, that whole issue of social care being a privatised provision morphs into health care. Mm. And then you've got all the stuff that Alison Pollock 
talks about as well, about different populations of people. So local authorities are responsible for all of the population within their boundaries, but in the NHS, in that same area, you'll have it goes according to who's registered with a GP. Some people won't be registered with a GP, but also some people, they won't be registered with anyone at all, but some will be registered with a GP out of the service and out of the, the boundary, and others will be from outside that area, but registered in. So you've got two completely different populations mm. in terms of social care and NHS, um, and you know how is that going to marry up? I mean, certainly what was said, the, um, the select committee, the health, mm. That committee to talk about accountable care, um, what people from Keep NHS Public and the other three was talking about. They were saying, yeah, what what what's needed is more co- better coordinated care. Mm. What NHS and social care don't need at the moment is a lot of energy, money spent on private consultancies, and God knows what else, on trying to integrate really complicated systems, one of which is free and one of which is chargeable. Mm. Um, what actually is needed in both systems is better funding and more staff. Mm. And and not to be firefighting. Mm. You can't... I mean, that's what's mad about all of this, apart from the, the ideology and everything else, is that people who are firefighting are being asked to completely change how they work. And um, the thing about the private care creeping into healthcare... Um, Anyone who's got an elderly relative in in a, in a home knows that it's incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know two. Well, one person in particular who's just put her dad into healthcare, and and it's nine hundred pounds a week. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. find that sort of money is yeah. just. Mm-hmm. But the the biggest risk initially, anyway, I think, is that they will definitely start redefining what's healthcare, the social care, is something is something chargeable, and it's easy to do that. You know, I mean, in the end, the only to thing, shift the goalposts. Well, you can shift the goalposts. Mm. So the only thing that's, that that you don't charge for in a hospital is is when, when you're when you're on the operating theatre. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. Mm. Well, again, talking about education, we've already got um, schools that have to ask the parents to uh-huh. pay for books. Yeah. So yeah. it's going to be like that, isn't it? You're going to have mm. to, with you know, looking at all this thing. It's so sort of dense. All the documents and learning all about the the sort of organisation of it is how it how is it going to affect people on the ground mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the really important mm-hmm. thing with all this yeah. that woman that we spoke to at the weekend when we were mm-hmm. out on the store the lady whose husband had had was in his late 70s had had health head injury so the hospital care was fantastic air ambulance all that got home but it was still very fragile and she was an elderly lady and was just dumped at home without any support without any care um, to, or without any sort of help in how to help her look after her husband mm-hmm. and talking to her, she was clearly visibly very distressed. Yeah. 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 So the next question is really about democracy and accountability. How have these changes been brought about? Well, I think by stealth is not an overstatement because NHS England is at arm's length from the government. It's not elected and yet it's introduced a five-year plan which completely upends the uh, NHS. So there's no mandate for it at all. But then when, after the NHS England demanded these plans, STPs, from the different footprints that it had set up, 
those were supposed to be kept entirely secret. I mean, we only knew anything about them for ages, mm. you know, if they were leaked. It wasn't by accident, you know, that, that there was stuff sent out by NHS England that said these should not be made public. So there's been no public consultation, or there's been no meaningful consultation. They talk about engagement with local communities. I mean, we've seen in our area there have been some gestures towards engagement, but it's with very specific groups. There's no publicity that means the general public know what's going on at all. There's really very little engagement about these plans, and in terms of meaningful consultation, there's really been nothing to speak of. And that's actually against the NHS constitution, and certainly the changes in commissioning that will be involved. I mean, that is something that the NHS constitution says has to be consulted on with the public. It's not happening at all. And that's partly why the judicial reviews are being sought now on that basis. That's quite a good thing to bring up, actually, because... It has forced some sort of opening up of the plans, hasn't it? And I presume that's part of the reason for doing it, as well as hopefully stopping them altogether. But it does need a scrutiny that's not being had. Even the Health Select Committee that was supposed to be scrutinising it seems to have completely rolled over and accepted that it's all a marvellous thing without actually taking any consideration for what campaigners have been saying Mm. for for years now. Mm. Health and Social Care Act kind of opened the floodgates, really, didn't it? and meant that they could do all these things. And then, of course, Jeremy Hunt sneaking in secondary legislation on top of that, trying to, on top of that. um, To try and rectify that situation. What's happening is illegal. I mean, I think from a public point of view, what's so important, I think, for people to understand is that the changes that have been brought into our health service have been going on for an awful long time, from ideas of treating it as a marketplace... Health and Social Care Act. Before that, already some privatisation. So it's been a long old plod. I think this is the end game. Yeah. I think certainly what Jeremy Hunt and Simon Stevens in NHS England are doing is lots of things. One of them is managing budgets. Uh, you know, it's part of austerity. But the health service is so popular. So what do you do? How do you do that? Well, what you do is you push the responsibility down to a more local level then it becomes incredibly varied across the country what's going on. Everybody gets terribly busy defending their own local hospitals. You end up focusing and blaming local rather than central government. So you push cuts down to a local level and then you create structures that are totally unaccountable and are liable to be privatised. And when you look at that in the context of the reduction of the role of the state generally, it all sort of makes sense from a from a right-wing point of view, and it really is horrendous, and certainly coming back to accountable, when we talk about accountable to whom, well, at the moment, at least the public can go to statutory bodies, CCG boards, hospital trust boards, local authorities, and put questions to them, speak to them, challenge them. All of them can be required to consult. The key part of the local authority is the role of councillors. So local people can not only go to scrutiny committee, but through their local political parties, can influence and hold their councillors to account. But once you've got massive big organisations, which have got no legislative basis to them whatsoever, that are also operated as businesses, mm-hmm. so they can, they can claim um, confidentiality, and they're not embedded in local legislative structures, then basically there's no accountability whatsoever to anybody. Mm. And 
add to that that there's going to be a 10-year contract. And how is anybody going to be able to do anything about any, any of it? They won't. Because we even already have with PFI contracts, because they are commercial contracts, we can't scrutinise them right. and assess whether they're fair yeah. or reasonable contracts yeah. because they're protected yeah. under commercial confidentiality. Yeah. Yeah. And however imperfect it is now, there is, I mean, particularly once you've been campaigning, you do realise, don't you, just how many avenues there are potentially to try and exercise a little bit of leverage, yeah. a little bit of influence. And it is only a little in the big scheme of things, but at least it's something. Mm. What will the public have in the future? Yeah. The Ombudsman, maybe, if they're lucky. At least for a time, the CCGs will retain that accountability. And, and at, at the moment, you know, when they set up these new systems, the partnership might make the decisions, but it still has to be approved they have to take that decision back to the CCGs because that's the legal body and they're the only ones that can do that in the health in the NHS setting. But the role of the CCG is going to change because they're going to be handing over more of the commissioning work that they do. And the way that the new contract is being set up for accountable care organisations or the way that the contracts that we've seen online suggest that providers working in these new systems you know, have to be prepared to shift the line of, I don't know if it's accountability even, but, but they're going to have to accept that there's going to be somebody new in that kind of role, that the CCG is going to be sort of pushed out of the way more. So um, I suppose they're assuming that these secondary legislation will have come in by the time all this happens. When you look at STPs, lots of our local authorities haven't signed up to them. Mm. They're still going ahead. So even though there's been complaint and concern expressed by local authorities as well as the public they're still going ahead with stuff but we do at least have that we do at least have the ability to challenge it is the same with the accountable officer i mean there's a lot of concern raised at hackney and waltham forest about having just one accountable officer across all seven boroughs yes Um, and before each ccg would have had an accountable officer and what there are seven or eight ccgs So they all had to accept that there was one, but they still have to take the decisions that are made. You know, the single accountable officer will be in a meeting and make some decisions, but they still have to go back at the moment to the individual CCGs. But they can just make them do it. Because NHS England or NHS London sit in on these meetings and they've just sat there and said, don't do it, you won't get any extra funding, mate. (laughs) Sorry. It's very, very simple. It's happened already, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got a lot of power centrally, is the purse strings, Mm. but also you've got devolution of responsibility Mm. and responsibility for failure locally. Mm. So you've got that tension between the centre bullying the the more local areas Mm. and the, the local areas being made to be more responsible for providing services that are so badly resourced that they're bound to fail. A lot of people say this is a move towards a US-style system. I think it's a bit tricky talking about it as a move towards a US-style system because one can get all caught up in complicated discussions about what is the US-style system or what is the NHS. One of the big um, reasons why people say that is that they're concerned that ACOs had the potential to bring private companies into the provision of healthcare and they also have the potential to 
because of rationing of services to people and cuts in services to bring insurance even more into our healthcare system. And of course, both insurance and privatisation are a key part of the American style, as accountable care organisations have been tried all over the world. NHS England have been looking at those different systems, so they've been drawing on the American system, but they've also been drawing on the one that's going in, or was in Spain, and New Zealand are very keen on the New Zealand model, so it's not primarily American. But it's a potential that they bring, yeah, because yeah. of these long contracts that will be area-based, and they'll be covering big areas, like in northeast London, they'll cover from Hackney out to Havering. So there'll be big areas, the potential for private companies to run the contract or to offer some services within the contract in the area, the attraction will be great. The way that accountable care organisations help to, to fragment the NHS they're creating more sort of bite-sized pieces that private companies can then take over the running. And because they're becoming involved with ACOs, potentially with commissioning services, you know, they'll have a contract, but within that contract they will be doing a lot of the work of commissioning in terms of planning services, um, deciding the location of services, what's going to be covered. In the private companies, you the mean. The private yeah. companies. Well, so that's a new role. Mm. And if you think of it as a, you know, a a relatively local system, particular kind of size. They couldn't take over the whole of the NHS, but you know, if it's broken up in this kind of way, despite their being unable previously to, in some instances, to make enough profit, that with this new scenario, there'll be new opportunities. And I suppose you could say that the the driver for the reorganisation, once we've got into that more private involvement, to get those private companies to stay in though you could restructure it even more to make it more friendly to them rather than from the patient's point of view. So we get to the point where private companies are then directing our health service. In different areas, yes. Not directing the whole service, but locally. Also, I think the fact that how long are the contracts going to be? About 10 years? 10 to 15 years. I mean, that makes it much more attractive. I think from the point of view of private companies, you know, they, they know what they're getting over what period of time. But the other thing I think that makes it potentially more attractive than it maybe has been so far is that certainly the big failures of private companies have been hospitals, for example, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, they don't want a hospital. No. With all the complexity that brings with an A&E, it's just not what a private company can make money out of. Whereas the, at the back of all this is to try and move away from hospital care and, there, and then there probably is more money to be made out of running community services and cherry-picking within that. And the other thing I've, I've read, I don't know how serious this is, but if, it, if it's possible, I think it's very serious, is that they'll be able to set up special-purpose vehicles yeah, yeah. within the accountable care system to borrow money. And that's, of course, how private finance initiatives yeah. have worked. So if you've got a 10-year contract and you can start borrowing money, then there's a scenario where, and I don't know whether they'll be borrowing money for building community services, presumed that's one of the things, or just borrowing money to run the services. But either way, we're going to be siphoning money, and we're already doing it through a PFI, out of our health service. All these loans, mm. which mm. is really what happened to Carillion, isn't it? They Absolutely. ended up taking on more contracts to pay for the running of their previous contracts, yeah. and right. it just escalated mm. and 
collapsed in the end mm. and where do the what happens to the patients yeah. when all that's going yeah. on yeah. Mm. Yeah. with moving services out of hospital and then bringing services together in a new kind of way you know the multi-specialty community providers and you know those sorts of models there aren't premises at the moment by and large in which you can do that i mean you know gps might have their practices but if they're coming together in hubs mm. and then they're with other services in the same premises or mm. um, assuming they're not all virtual mm. um, yeah. then you've immediately got who's going to be building these they're openly talking at the moment about public private partnerships so they don't very often say pfi but in order to to get that and if you look at the spanish model was that they had the special purpose vehicle as part of the the ACO, which was also running the clinical services. So so it's not just as we've had with PFI here in terms of building and maintaining hospital buildings, say, and the, the some of the soft stuff, you know, like the um, catering or cleaning services. This would actually cover clinical services as well. With all the profit motives yeah. wrapped up in it. Yeah. You've then got this bizarre situation where within whatever system is set up, they're all supposed to not act in their own interest. All the different organisations, so like if you've got a hospital and various community services and so on, all within one, one system, they've got to ignore their own interests in that and share all the sort of risks and gain across the system. So, for example, if a hospital is now, which is you know, increasing pressure on hospitals to sell, in quotes, surplus land and buildings, well, the money that comes from that, I don't know quite how they'll be able to manage it, but in this, the way that they're supposed to operate within the system is that they, that money will go to whoever needs it within that system. Now, that could be a private company that's working within that system you know so you could have nhs money propping up private companies i don't know that you're going to have private companies all that keen on spending money on propping up nhs services but it's it's it seems totally unrealistic to expect this ad hoc group of organizations to somehow share their resources you know in a sort of socialist kind of system <laughs> really <laughs> um, just so there's another tension there really that's yeah. going on. I mean, how on yeah. earth is that yeah. going to work? Well, if health and social care can't work together, they've been trying to do it for the last 50 yeah. years. Yeah. It's a bit highly, yeah. highly blooming unlikely yeah. that private sector companies who are doing hip replacements yeah. are going to suddenly be able to do it as well, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It must have been 20, 20, 25 years ago. I remember going to a conference at the Methodist Hall, central London, about the NHS. And I'll never forget this young researcher who was researching, you know, the lift schemes, the yeah. community buildings. They were sort of like PFI, but community buildings, basically. Yeah. She'd sat in on an awful lot of meetings between government and big companies. And I remember her saying, never underestimate how attractive... The NHS is to the big multinational. There is so much money involved um, that they'd love to get their hands on. And she also said, don't underestimate how attractive it is to government to have the multinationals involved because of the problem for government of borrowing. Yeah. So you get you get, you know, get a perfect storm yeah. of it suits government to hide the need to borrow as happened with Which PFI. is where PFI came That's from right. in the first so place. And it yeah. suits both. Yeah. And 
you know, it was so prescient. 25 years ago, yeah. more yeah. than that maybe. Oh, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned privatisation a lot. Shall we just quickly say a few bits about why we don't think private companies is a good way of running the health service? It's the first legal responsibility of private companies to make a profit for their shareholders. And that profit has to come out of the money that's available for the NHS. It's, you know, it's not on top of yeah. the money that they get. And so that's, that's inevitably going to, to mean less money for, for services and, and a different focus. You know, it's not patient care that's at, at the centre of it. And also, in order to make profit, then they're going to cherry-pick services that are profitable as well and then leave the services that are unprofitable to the NHS to, to cope with. And in the past, there's been a sort of system that, where it gets evened out that um, the services that do make more, potentially more money, would then go to, to help subsidise the more expensive services mm. like intensive care and, and so on. And so you know, we're getting... We're so the cyclical the, sort of yeah. relationship, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, one of the many reasons why our hospitals now are struggling, and there's lots mm. of reasons why they are, but one of them is that for every person who has their, their hip replacement done privately, the money goes with them to the private company as opposed to going like to Bart's Trust, which is our local hospital trust. Um, so it's already destabilising um, the hospitals. I remember talking to somebody about running of, um, an eye clinic and how a private unit had opened near to where the eye clinic was that was just draining patients away. And that particular NHS eye clinic had a really, really good reputation, mm. but that they were killing themselves to try and keep the patients, basically, which is outrageous. Mm. And we, I'm cracking, we've seen it from the privatisation of, of our utilities. You know, you don't have to just look at the NHS to see mm. what can go wrong. Mm. And Carillion is the standout mm. example, isn't it, of what happens when profit is put before the quality and the reliability and the safety and the staff. Mm. If you want to make a profit, usually your biggest costs are staff. Mm. So Mm. what you have to do is you either cut back on your staff or you cut back on what you pay your staff or you recruit less qualified staff or you change their contracts or you do all of those things. Um, so it affects everybody. Yeah. There's a public sector ethos which is about yeah. providing a service to people based on the fact that they need it. You don't hear, it drives me mad, you don't hear the word need, you hear the word demand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, as if people are demanding a house yeah. service, like yeah. you might demand a health service, you need it. I think as well, going back to the workforce issues, you're mm-hmm. fracturing the workforce. I mean, we've had a gender for change as a system for deciding nationally you know, what people are paid, what rate they're paid out of terms and conditions and so on for for different grades. And that mm-hmm. process of, you know, there's a huge amount of work that went into establishing a very fair system that looked at what people did and what experience they had and, and so on. And so nationally you had pay rates that went across the whole of, of mm. England, certainly. And that's just going to become fractured. And the negotiating power of 
mm. workers is really going to be undermined. I think that's a, it's another part of privatisation. Which is exactly what's happening in, in education, isn't it, with teachers in academies yeah. and not not uh, under the same contracts yeah. as um, mm. the state education. Yeah. Mm. Doctors on zero hours contracts. Yeah. Mm. Do you want a cup of tea? Can we have a break? Yeah, of course. I think the thing that's hard to get across is the fragmentation, what exactly that means. We've got the 44 areas and then they're each being encouraged, although there's still huge central control. So it's, you know, it's often spoken of in terms of, you know, these new areas have freedom to do this and do that. NHS England has this iron glove in controlling what happens, either by withholding funding or withholding permission for things and having their people on boards and all sorts of different ways. But within those areas, they are supposed to have the freedom to develop these integrated care systems as they want and are relevant to local areas. So they're all developing in entirely different ways. So there's no consistency, which has all kinds of implications, I think, in terms of how can you compare what's going on in one area with another and really getting to grips with well, what, what is going on because it's, it's so local, really. We've had really good systems for uh, getting warnings of epidemics, you know, all the kind of statistics that are taken in a very systematic way. And I think a lot of that kind of stuff is just going out the window. Mm. You know, so there's that kind of fragmentation. So there's, there's that sort of less direct impact in terms of, you know, are we all more vulnerable to the next influenza that's going to come because we're not going to spot it in the way that we might have before. It's worrying that those sorts of things are are happening. In the first episode of the podcast, actually, I talked a little bit about that yeah. internationally and how, um, say, for example, Ebola could have been very rapidly controlled with a universal healthcare yeah. system. Yeah. Um, and that, that's why it was so expensive for the US, because they don't have a national plan yeah. for epid- epidemics. Yeah. My understanding is that so much in terms of learning and advancement in surgery, in medicine, whatever, has been based on collaboration and easy movement of people and ideas and learning between organisations. Whereas if in Manchester you've got an ACO that's run at the moment, as it happens by an NHS trust, and in North East London you've got an ACO that's run by a private company, then it's going to be completely different in terms of how they can collaborate and work together. This is all happening in the context of cuts. So it's not as if we talk about ACOs with expanding budgets. We talk about ACOs with contracting budgets and growing populations. So there's going to be a perfect storm of more need and less money. And in places like North East London, we've got two hospitals that have been on special measures. We've got three acute hospital trusts and five hospital trusts. Mm-hmm. And of the three acute trusts, two have been on special measures. Two have got PFIs. We've got Barts, which has got the biggest PFI. Barts is never, ever, ever going to sort its deficit. Not and under if, the current arrangement. No. No. And if Barts were a private company, it would go into liquidation. Mm-hmm. That's the situation. Because so, of its PFIs. Yeah. 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 So we've, got, we've inherited, historically, chronic financial problems in two of our hospital trusts and we've got a lot of poverty 
and we'll have all that those problems locked into a 10-year contract and then there'll be you know some rich part i don't know surrey berkshire the cotswolds david cameron will be all right mm. you know um where well although even his council sent him letters didn't they true, saying yeah, he was, yeah. they were being squeezed get a grip yeah. um so that and what will happen in terms of fragmentation presumably if these damn things go ahead is that um there will be different sorts of rationing mm. so if you're if you live in northeast london you won't ever get a hip replacement say whereas if you live in derbyshire you'll get one but you won't get two or there'll be different you know there'll be rash there'll be rationing certainly around cancer drugs that would be a big thing because mm. cancer drugs are very expensive. So depending on where you live, your you know your start your chance of surviving pancreatic cancer will vary or breast cancer. I'm quite confused about what capitation yeah. means. So, I'm, but it sounds almost like it's a fixed budget. Mm. So budget could be another word for it almost. Yeah. That there's a fixed budget for a certain population, yeah. um, and woe betide you if you need more than that budget because yeah, it's not there, there which yeah. is I mean it's pretty much what's happening isn't it to the to hospitals already is that they they've got this budget a hospital has gone over budget so who has fixed the budget what's the budget based yeah. on yeah. is it based on the necessity or the, <clears throat> the need of care or what or is yeah. it just some it feels like it's some sort of arbitrary figure that, that, yeah. that that's come up with yeah. without any <laughs> I, I think it's different from from say how hospitals have been paid in the past it's based on the population and not on the volume of services provided and that's what the system was before for, for hospitals as I understand it so it doesn't matter how many services you provide you'll just get that amount of money so you could you're not committed to, to providing a certain level of service. Unlike the hospitals, which, you know, there was, as I think it was, there would be some kind of spectrum that they would get so much for, for each, I don't know, operation or, or what have you. And then there was a certain amount they couldn't go over or there was a problem if they went beyond that. Whereas this is absolutely fixed and it's not related. So, you know, it's easier then to ration because it's not linked to the volume of work that's actually undertaken. It rests instead on outcomes, so it's all... It doesn't even rest on outcomes, does it? If, if it's just based on the number of people you've got in your area, then that's what you get. Yeah. And you can test the outcomes. I think one of the criticisms at the moment of the way funding is worked out is there's lots of different elements to it. So there are, I think, there's tariffs for hip replacements, for example. And then there's other financial incentives built in, aren't there, for doctors, for GPs, for hospitals as well. So I think it is incredibly complicated. Mm. But I think one of the biggest criticisms of just having capitated budgets is that it's not based on need. Because the need of a population where there's a lot of poverty, for example, is very different from an area where there's, where on the whole people are more affluent. Mm because there's a high correlation between poverty and ill health. So a relatively well-off area with the same number of people yeah. as a poor area would have the same budget. It illustrates a lack of understanding of what drive, drives need in terms of care. Or a disregard. Yeah. Or a disregard. Yeah. 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 And that's why they don't talk about need. Mm. They talk about demand. And I think it's interesting, I think as health campaigners, that's one of the things that we need to start doing, to talk about need, because yeah. it is about need. Mm. Yeah. Needs gone out. It's all. It's become incredibly based around commerce and 
markets, mm. Mm. you know, supply and demand, mm. you know, Profit rather than need and, mm. and treatment, you know. It takes the human out of oh, it. Oh, absolutely. It? Completely yeah. removes the human. Yeah. Mm. And that's where personal budgets come in mm. as well. Because we've already got personal budgets for yeah. certain things, and that's more social care. Is that right? Is that long-term <laughs> conditions, I think. Mm. I think that's, yes. they've been yeah. around for a while. Yeah. But they're certainly, they're certainly, um, they've started to introduce personal budgets for maternity, and, and that links into a business model and a market. And if you've got a market, something is a commodity. If you've got a commodity, then you talk about choice, and you talk about purchase. You get you've gone right away from providing a service to people who need it to providing a commodity for people who choose how they get access to that commodity. So you give someone a personal budget. It's only the bunk and it's awful. But what happens when your personal budget runs out? Does it well, that's a like very that? good, that's a very yeah. good question. Yeah. But the other side of that as well is that in order to get a personal budget, at least, I don't know how they're doing it more recently because they've become much more sort of mainstream, but um, a few years ago when they were first being introduced, the CCG would pay for the person, it would come out of the CCGs, which you know is a problem for the CCGs as well in terms of losing that kind of money and control over how that's spent. But they would have, if say I needed a person or decided I wanted a personal budget, I would have to meet someone who would then assess how much money I needed, what kind of control I had over it compared to how much control would be retained by some. So the administrative costs alone just suddenly you know, mm. shoot up because you've suddenly got a whole new role or, mm. or um, swathe of roles to, to deal with that you don't see talked about in terms of you know, what what they mean at all. And the other thing that isn't mentioned is you know, some people would use it for employing their own personal care, but then what's involved is you actually then have to take on the role of an employer. So you've got to think about things like insurance, mm-hmm. your own insurance to cover somebody working in your house, say, um, national insurance for the carer, you've got to think about paying holiday pay and sickness pay, and then you've got to think about cover for if that person is off sick and what you do if they're off sick. So there's all this kind of administrative stuff that as someone who's not 100% in the first place is then having to think about in order to manage this personal budget. So, And you know, not everyone is that savvy with dealing with those sorts of things. So it depends on how you spend it. And there are some controls on it, or there were, but it's... It's not at all straightforward, you know, it's not this... I've never heard that talked about in terms of personal budgets and no. that, that responsibility mm. that the mm. person takes on. Yeah. Wow. The other thing is that there's been a fairly recent ruling, I think, in the courts that not only do people have to sort out all the stuff you were talking about, but also pension. When you throw everything into the pot, yeah. it just becomes untenable. But from the point of view of people like the CCGs, it's... And particularly how everything is written these days it's all just glossed over mm. you know, so it's mm. written as, as you know, the best thing since sliced bread yeah. without anyone saying why are we doing this yeah. surely if I'm about to have a baby I just want to know that I'll get really good quality maternity care and that people will treat me with sensitivity and professionalism mm. that's what yeah. I want I just, you know not a personal budget eh? yeah. <laughs> it's it's, um... Phew, 
that was all a bit dense i hope it wasn't too much next is a sketch with rufus hound written by bird and fortune an age ago what seemed a hilarious extrapolation of changes to healthcare at the time has become chillingly familiar here we go Uh, John Bird and John Fortune, uh, as part of Bremner Bird and Fortune, had put together a sketch just as the internal market within the NHS was being established, and they rather beautifully skewered what that was going to mean. Mm. And now we've had, you know, uh, 10 years almost of, of the internal market within the NHS, and almost everything they predicted is more or less what has happened. And so I contacted uh, the people that own that material, um, and said, could we restage that sketch and do it as, like, looking, looking back as, this is what is happening now. And uh, what was sort of almost comedic um, uh, imagination is now sort of jaw-droppingly true and, you know, degrading. We didn't have to change anything about the sketch, did we? No. And it's, what, 16 years We old? changed the tense. George Parr. Hello. You have recently been appointed Chief Executive of the Herefordshire NHS Healthcare Trust. That's right, yes, yes. Um, with uh, a remit to continue bringing the discipline of the market to the National Health Service. Very much so, very much so, yes. In yes. charge of 11 hospitals. Uh, no, well, two. Uh, two, it was 11, but we've uh, downsized a little bit. <laughs> I see. Uh, in the interest of efficiency and, uh, well, just slimming it down a bit, really. Right. Well, I mean, that's what we're going to talk about, isn't it? The discipline of the market. Yeah. Was this the first thing that you did after you'd been appointed? Uh, well, uh, well, you know, the first thing that we did, uh, which uh, is something that our colleagues in the private sector have done, is to take ourselves off to a country hotel for a weekend, uh, for, the, for the whole week, actually, and uh, brainstorm our problems. And we came up with some pretty tough decisions, I can tell you. To downsize being what, one of them? Uh, Yes, um, downsizing was one of them. Uh, also, one of our first things was to give ourselves a, um, a large increase in salary and then make a corporate video. <laughs> well, uh, as Mrs Thatcher once noted, the, uh, the, the problem with the NHS is that demand is infinite. Oh, yes, I mean, the, the facts are there. The demand on the NHS has never been greater. Yet, at the same time, the health of the nation has never been better. Now, this can really only indicate one thing. What's that? That people, or patients, are not really ill. <laughs> people are presenting themselves to hospital without illness. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, I, I think it's very much like the benefit system. I mean, people, uh, people uh, know that they can get unemployment benefit. They are being rewarded for not working. There is no incentive for them to go back into work. I understand. And in the same way, um, people feel that they can be rewarded for being ill by being treated. <laughs> and there is no incentive for them to get better. So what we're looking to do is to push incentive because we think that's a really good market. Right. So you're going to continue to bring, to bring the discipline of the market into the NHS, indeed even expand upon it? Yes, we're going to expand upon it. We're going to expand upon it in, in how hospitals are actually run. We want to expand on the efficiency and on the savings that the marketplace can bring. In what sort of way? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, in the old days, a surgeon would walk into an operating theatre, there'd be a body, and you'd want to cut it open. And he would ask for a scalpel. And the nurse would give him a scalpel with no consideration about whether he needed the scalpel 
whether the scalpel was necessary or whether indeed he could get the scalpel cheaper somewhere else. <laughs> or indeed if he could use a razor blade from home or uh, a, a paper clip or um, indeed his own teeth if necessary. So w what happens now? Well, well, you see, now, <clears throat> what happens now is uh, you have um, uh, the, the surgeon, if he deems that uh, a, a scalpel is necessary, uh, he will put out uh, a, a tender. Uh, he will put out, uh, well, he'll put out a bid, a bid a for tender, a scalpel. A tender, uh, a tender for a scalpel. And the first thing he'll do is he will ask around the operating theatre to see if another nurse has a scalpel cheaper than the one than the nurse next to him. Which, which will be quite difficult, as we only have one, one nurse in the operating theatre. Uh, and then, and now, now this is an appointment I've put in myself, uh, the scalpel resource manager uh, will then, and he's been put in on a, a salary of £45,000 a year. Now, he will. Now, as soon as he knows that a scalpel is needed... Well, perhaps. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps needed. Uh, in operating theatre A, or B, well, it will be A, we only have one operating theatre. Uh, he, as soon as he knows that a scalpel is needed, he bursts into action. He phones round the whole country, sends faxes uh, to see where he can find the cheapest scalpel. Now, if that happens to be in Barrow in Furness, then that's where he will go. He will personally go and get it. Yes, yes, he will go himself. Absolutely. He's not going to send it in the post. <laughs> of course not. He'll jump in the car. Yes, he'll get in his Series 7 BMW, which is what he gets with the job. Well, otherwise, he wouldn't be taken seriously. No, quite right. <laughs> but some might say, uh, with all this radical reform, that it may be possible to get rid of the middlemen entirely. What do you mean? get rid of the doctors and the surgeons. <laughs> yes, yes, well, that is something we've been thinking. What it's about is patient choice. Yes. I mean, you, you want to empower the patients to make their own decisions. Yes. And make their own incisions. <laughs> Sorry, how would that... I'll tell you. Uh, so a patient walks into doctor's surgery with a growth. and says, I've got a growth. What are you going to do about it? And I will say, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> And then you would empower them to yeah, use well, your... Well, well, we would lease an operating theatre. A mirror. A mirror and a book on major surgery and how to do it. <laughs> and then they would resource that themselves? Yes, they would be able to be resourceful. They would be able to resource themselves. They would be able to stand on their own two feet. Well, perhaps not if, if they've had a, an anaesthetic for... Down there. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, in terms of pure management, don't the patients then rather just get in the way? Say they get in the way so much. But, um, you know, what we're trying to do is have a thrusting business atmosphere, but of course, you know, the, the managers are going to have to find some way of assessing performance. You know, this has to be very simple and it has to be easily measurable. Well, how carefully a doctor looks after his patient. No, 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 no. no it's, what, it's what we call in, in the business um, throughput. Throughput? Throughput, yes. Uh, the, the amount of patients that come into hospital and then how many leave again. Uh, because this is how we're going to assess hospital performance. Because, you know, it's, it's very good for a hospital to have a lot of patients coming in, and it's even better for them to have a lot of them going out again as quickly as possible. Because a patient, by definition, when it comes into a hospital, is ill, and when it goes out again, is, is better. So the quicker they go out, the better, better they are. <laughs> Sorry. So, if, if I follow your logic, the best possible hospital is one where the patient arrives in an ambulance, smashes up to the main doors, puts straight on a gurney, rattles down the corridors, into surgery, where a doctor looks at them and says, yes, 
that's them. Somebody writes down their name and address, they're back on the gurney, straight to the back door, straight into an ambulance, and home again. Sorry, do you mind if I write that down? That really is a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic idea. We could charge £10 a month and call it fast-track treatment. That would look very good on the brochures, wouldn't it? <laughs> Doesn't that jeopardise patient care? Uh, yes, it would jeopardise patient care. It would make them perhaps go out of the window, in a, which is also a very good idea, because that would cure the bottleneck at the doors. Yes, but of course, I mean, there is, there is a, a much bigger criteria for this. There are many other things. It's not just facts and figures. There are loads of things to, 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 to think about when it comes to, to health care. Cost is another. Money. Money, yes. Money, money, money. We need to save money. And that money we are going to save through greater efficiency. What does that mean? Well, it means, it, it means what it's always meant, doesn't it? Cutting services and replacing expensive, qualified staff with cheap, unqualified staff and firing anyone who questions our God-given right to do it. <laughs> right. Uh, and what result does that have? Well, I think the ma main result is, is many more jobs, I think. Well, hang on, sorry. You fire a lot of expensive, qualified staff and create more jobs for doctors and nurses? No, 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 no. No, no, not doctors and nurses. More management consultants such as myself who are vital. I see. Because, I mean, in the long run, that's what's going to save the taxpayer money, isn't it? I mean, it takes five to seven years to train a doctor, and you can become a management consultant in one week at Chilton Glen Hotel. <laughs> George Parr, thank you very much. Pleasure. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that all thank you so much for listening um i hope you'll join me next time um the subject the main subject next time is um pfi uh, and the scandal of how much it's costing us uh, to pay for healthcare, but also it is used for all sorts of other things across the country and internationally actually and it's just a bonkers way of funding capital projects. Um, that interviews with Helen Mercer who's a, a really amazing uh, researcher and campaigner on PFI and other things. Thank you again and I hope you'll join us next time. Bye!